So today we're going to be finishing out 1 Thessalonians, this, the end of chapter 2, and we're actually going to be kind of plowing all the way through chapter 3, um, and then the end of chapter 3 we're going to double back to next week. And so the Paul's doxology or his prayer there at the end of chapter 3, we're going to revisit it next week. But this whole section of scripture, let me just remind you of the situation at hand, is that Paul was in Thessaloniki, which is in northeastern Greece. And in northeastern Greece and Thessaloniki, Paul was just there for a couple of weeks before persecution forced him and his compadres to leave. And they had to go to these various towns, and then they were pursued, and they wound up in Athens, which we see in Acts chapter 17, and other areas. And so during this time, Paul is reminiscing. He sends this letter back to them, and he's reminiscing in the first 10 verses of chapter 1 about their growth and how he prays for them because he knows he witnessed firsthand the Holy Spirit come upon them in power. He saw genuine salvation in their midst. And then in the last section of Scripture that we looked at two weeks ago, because last week was our testimony week, Paul reminds them of his own role as the apostle who brought them the gospel. And so there's a sense in which in the first half of chapter 2, Paul is defending his apostolicity, or he's defending his right to have a voice in their life, okay? And so in other words, he's only there for a month, he leaves, and so he's reinforcing that, he's reminding them, we talked about this two weeks ago, that he has genuine affection for them, genuine care, he loved them like a father, meaning that he exhorted them and encouraged them and wanted them to move towards holiness. But he also was tender like a mother who he nurtured their faith and he showed them grace and love. And the situation continues. In this section, we see that Paul is going to justify or, in a sense, defend his absence because, as we talked about in the past, that Paul did not get to return to Thessaloniki himself. He actually had to send Timothy and Silas to go in and check up on the Thessalonians. And so he wants to reinforce in this section that they don't misinterpret his absence as a lack of genuine care. Okay? And so this is the situation. It's always important when you read these books to realize that there's a situation which the author is, is, um, is addressing. And so the, the interpretation of the text is, also, is always what is the response to that situation, the, the intended meaning of the author. And then we can draw principles out that are built upon that intended meaning. And so this is the situation that's going on in Thessaloniki. And as I was thinking about this idea that it's like Paul's ministering and then he's forced to leave and he wants to go back, but he can't go back. That's what we see here in this section. I was reminded of, what was, do you guys think I was reminded of? The last year and a half, right? When everything in the world has been uprooted and all of the things that we wanted to do that we haven't been able to do, that we were essentially uh, forced to either change our perspective or, or whatever it might be. And so I just want to read First Thessalonians. I want to read this section, and then we're going to explain it. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, this is verse 17, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. 
because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind to Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions of persecution, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, and for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and he's brought us the good news of your faith and your love and he's reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So that's Paul's heart. You can hear it in the way Paul writes. This is his heart for the Thessalonians. We see in those first three verses, those first four verses, he says that we wanted to come to you so many times we didn't want to just send a messenger. We were torn away from you, brothers, not in person, but in heart. And we wanted to go to you time and time again. But he says the enemy stopped us. You see, Paul's time with the Thessalonians was brief, but he wants them to know that, his, that this is not because of disinterest or a cold heart. That for Paul, this is not just a project. You know, often there's a, churches and ministries can get a bad rap where people just become project, projects instead of actually having a heartfelt affection. Paul wants them to know that that is not the case, that this wasn't just a job opportunity for Paul. This is genuine affection and care for the Thessalonians. And as I was thinking about that concept, what immediately came to my mind was Greece. So two years ago, almost to the day, two years ago this July, um, we had an opportunity to go to Greece, to go to a, an island called Lesvos, where there was, at the time, the uh, primary hotspot refugee camp for refugees who were coming out of Afghanistan and Iran and Syria, and they would hire these, these dinghies to bring them to the island, and there was almost 20,000 refugees in a camp designed for two or 3,000 people. And while we were there, we saw that it was like fishing in a bucket, that God was doing amazing things to bring numerous 
um, Muslims to faith, a lot of them from Afghanistan. And we came home, and many of you who were here remember how God confirmed through miraculous means time and time again that we should be involved in that ministry. And we brought the whole elder team, and we were preparing to try to set up rotations of workers, and the McCumbers even left to go for 90 days, and we were supposed to meet up with them at the end of March, and then it started to get uneasy. Turkey started to release refugees to go towards the Greek border up by Thessaloniki. And there started to be riots on Lesvos as well as around Greece and at the border. And then this thing started coming out of China that everybody was like, what's going on? This virus. And everything screeched to a halt as the McCumbers were forced to depart and we were forced to cancel our trip. And as everybody knows, life was essentially put on hold for the last year and a half. Matter of fact, in the last 1.5 years, many of those workers who we met two years ago are no longer there. They simply returned. Greece stopped doing visa appointments. Mission agencies required their people to come home. The word Paul uses in verse 17, he says, we were torn away. Do you know what that word actually is in the Greek? It's orphaned. He says, we were orphaned from you. What a fitting term when you think about refugees traveling where parents and children are separated by casualty of war. And that's essentially what Paul is saying. We were orphaned from you. Persecution tore us apart. You see, Paul's framework for discipleship, you know, he says, we see Matthew 28, go and make disciples. And Paul doesn't use that terminology. Do you know what terminology Paul always uses? A family. This is Paul's framework for explaining discipleship. It's always a family. And for Paul, what happened with his new spiritual children was on the level of being orphaned. For Paul, this was like having his children ripped away from them in a time in history when you couldn't send an email, you couldn't send a text, and you couldn't go back to see how they were actually doing. Paul wanted to, but he could not. And this led to Paul and his traveling team to feel a sense of disruption and frustration and powerlessness. And I think I speak on behalf of many of us at Revolve who felt a personal connection to the potential and the going, the work that was happening in Greece, that that is how we felt disrupted, frustrated, and powerless. I know this is how the refugees felt in the camp. Their contacts on the ground all having to leave. Think about the Thessalonians and think about those refugees. What is on their mind? Maybe Paul didn't actually care about us. This was just traveling guy coming through. Maybe we were tricked. Maybe this isn't even real. But Paul says Satan prevented us from visiting with you on multiple, uh, multiple occasions. You see, and when Satan does that, what he does is he always fills the void. He fills the gap, Right? You guys know what this is like, because if you have a friend who you haven't talked to in a couple months, what does Satan do? 
he starts to take that gap and he fills it with artificial stories, right? And in those artificial stories, have you noticed how there's always villains, right? And there's antagonists and somehow you're always the hero. Have you noticed that, right? But that's what Satan does. He fills the gap with distrust, with misinformation. He fills it with doubts and concerns. That's what happened with the Thessalonians. That's what happened with many of our hearts. Was that even real? Why did God open that door? Was it a door? And you start to have your mind filled with lies. He's the father of lies. That's what the scripture calls him. He seeks to steal and kill and destroy. He wants to destroy Paul's ministry. He wants to destroy the Thessalonians' faith. And he does this with lies and deceit. But Paul could not wait to get to them. Why, does he say? He says, for what is my hope? What is my joy? What is my crown of boasting? He says, it's you. Now, I want you to think about that. Think about each of those things through a parenting lens. Because if I said to you, what's your joy? What's your hope? You know what you would say as a good Christian? What would you say? Jesus. Jesus is my joy. Jesus is my hope. And those things are true. But Paul says specifically, these people of God are my joy, my hope, and my crown of boasting. To understand that, you need to look at it as a parent. And for some of you who aren't parents, just use your imagination, okay? My joy. As a parent, the joy of seeing your children prosper and grow to maturity, to a, a healthy adult who contributes to society, my hope, the hope of knowing that even in the middle of difficulty, your family's going to be there for you, that they're going to be alongside you even when terrible things happen. And my boast, how parents can be so proud of their kids, right? That you can see a dad watching his daughter on the stage during a dance recital, and he's like, pirouette. Go, 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 right? Loses all sense of shame because he's proud, Right? And you can have a mom all of a sudden become like, I don't know, like a wild boar as she's screaming at the soccer field because her kid's about to get a goal. Go on! Right? And you're like, oh my goodness. I think she's possessed. My joy, my hope, my boasts. See, this is how we should feel about people who we are developing spiritually. Discipleship group leaders, this is how we're supposed to feel. Listen, who are your spiritual kids? Not that you brought them to faith, right? People don't come to faith in a vacuum, right? Everybody's kind of, one person is watering, one person is sowing seed. They don't mean anything. God alone gives the growth. But who are you investing in? That's how Paul felt about those in whom he had skin in the game. And he says, I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't bear it any longer. And so I was like, you know what? Just leave me alone in Athens. You guys go back to Thessaloniki and figure out what is going on because I just cannot sleep. I'm worrying so much about my spiritual kids. That's Paul's heartbeat. 
He, they had warned them there was going to be affliction. They had warned them there was going to be persecution. They had warned them that it is with many trials that we inherit the kingdom of God. But all of the warning in the world doesn't help when you can't be there as a parent. All you want to do is help. I mean, parents, can you relate to this? Right? Of course you can relate to it. When you see your kids sick and you're like, I just wish I were sick. Why can't I be sick? And you pray, like, make me sick and heal them, right? Like it's the Green Mile by Stephen King, right? <laughs> it doesn't work that way. See, this was Paul's process, by the way. This was his missionary style. He would go into new regions. He would look for new contacts. He would love them well, teach them well, train them well. Then he would move on, and then he would double back to, to coach. See, Paul's intention was never to intentionally orphan people. But in this situation, it, was, it wasn't an option. He cared deeply for them. And he would normally go himself, as we see in Acts 13 and other chapters. He would normally go himself to coach and develop and encourage, but here he didn't have a choice. So he sends Timothy to establish them, in other words, to, uh, to equip them and to reinforce what was lacking. He sends Timothy to exhort them, that means to correct them and encouragement, encourage them if there was something off base. And then he says, to do these things specifically in light of affliction. Now, we, like Paul, have been ripped from many of our gospel opportunities, both domestic and global. And for me, I don't know about you, I, I hope you felt like this. I hope that in the last year and a half, you haven't just made your life all about you. But for me, in the last year and a half, I have experienced Paul's heart feeling like I have been ripped asunder from the things that God was calling our little church family to. Not because we didn't want to, but it's been beyond our control. I mean, in Greece, you couldn't even go as an American. I had to get a COVID test in Iraq. Do you know what a terrible experience that was? I mean, this was, these are not enjoyable things. Even gathering together has been awkward. Revolve is 80 adults down from where it was. We can appreciate what Paul's saying. Yeah, we have text messages and Zoom and emails. We all know it's not the same. It's not the same. Emailing your family isn't the same as seeing them, especially when they are going through a hard time. So he sends Timothy, and then Timothy comes back and praise the Lord. Timothy comes back with a positive report. He returns with this positive report to everyone's joy and excitement. He says, Timothy has come to us from you, and he's brought good news of your faith and love, and he's reported that you always remember us kindly. What a sigh of relief. What a sigh of relief. And he says, for this, this reason, in all our distress, we are comforted. And I love verse 8. He says, we live if we know that you're standing fast in the Lord. Kids, that's how your parents feel about you. They live if they know you're doing okay. If they know that you're all right, you're safe, you're healthy, you're walking with Jesus, they'll gladly give up both of their legs if that's what it came down to. That's how a godly parent feels, a sense of 
relief for their children. You see, Paul places a remarkable value in this relationship. And it's encouraging to him that the affection is not unreturned or unrequited. In fact, they feel the same way that he does. And so despite his own hardship, what's going on in Athens, which you can read about in the book of Acts, and despite his inability to do anything about his friends, his his spiritual kids, he takes joy, he takes hope, he takes comfort knowing that they are with him in spirit and they have not abandoned him. He says, you're standing fast and so I live. This reminds me of 3 John, which is one of those books that most people forget to read. 3 John 14, when John says, I have no greater joy than knowing my children are walking in the truth. Can I just say, it's not in my notes, we need to move past an individualistic understanding of salvation. John and Paul don't say, I have no greater joy than being on my face in a quiet time and experiencing deep intimacy with Jesus. That's not what either of them say. They say, I have no greater joy than knowing my kids, spiritual kids, are walking in the truth. That should make you a little uncomfortable because it almost feels sacrilegious, doesn't it? Like, well, Jesus is supposed to be my biggest joy. But if the church is Jesus' body, then when you love the church like that, you are loving Jesus like that. This goes to show you how little we understand the idea of ecclesia and assembly and the people of God in America. That we can go a year and a half without connecting with each other, and it's like, whatever. I got a podcast. Isn't that enough? No, we, there should feel like we're orphaned. That's how it should feel. So then he bursts forth into pray, prayer because he says to them, I yearn to go to you. I yearn to, to send to you. I yearn to reconnect to you. And so I'm going to pray for that opportunity so we can fill up what is lacking and we can bolster your faith. And then he closes with this beautiful prayer, which we're going to touch on again next week. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, one, direct us to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love, two. So direct us to you, increase and abound in love, and that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness, three. So he prays for direction to them. He prays for love to be developed in them, and he prays for their holiness to grow before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This reminds me of James 1.27, a verse that people love to quote half of it, where he says in James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphan and widows in their affliction, that's love, and to keep oneself unstained by the world, that's holiness. That's exactly what Paul prays for. The same thing, love and holiness. So any questions about stuff that Paul talked about in this chapter before we try to pull this together with a bow? All right, so some big thoughts. I want you to think about Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. 
I want you to genuinely try to put yourself in Paul's shoes. He goes, he finds some contacts, he and his friends lead them to faith. They baptize them so they're reborn into the new family of God. They help them to establish this little bulkhead in Thessaloniki because they're a new spiritual family. And he says, I'm telling you, wolves are going to come in. They're going to try to destroy you. They're going to try to tear you apart. They're going to twist you against one another. And so you need to hold fast. You need to hold on. You need to, you need to make sure that you're having short accounts and loving one another another and giving grace and then he's ripped asunder from them he's orphaned from them and he's desperate to come back now I want you to be honest do you feel that sense of affection for the people in this room DG leaders leaders of all kinds Elders, do we feel that sense of affection for the people in this room where if they are absent, we feel like we've been orphaned from them? You know, the gospel is spreading like wildfire in the Middle East. And one person I was talking to, it's obviously the Spirit of God is on the move, right? But he pointed out something very obvious. That in the Middle East, they understand community, they understand family, but they never had the gospel. You gave them the gospel and it spread. In America, we understand the gospel, but what don't we understand? Community and family. And because we don't understand community and family, the gospel doesn't spread the way that it should. Thank you, Emma. Listen, I say this to my own shame. I wish I had that kind of affection for everybody in this room. Some of you I like more than you deserve. <laughs> to quote Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> no, but for Paul, this isn't just an opportunity or a job. This is a deep longing. So I want to give you three big thoughts. One, God has given us family relationships to help us understand discipleship relationships. This is what God does. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, make lots of babies. And Jesus essentially gives the same spiritual command when he says, go and make disciples of all nations. You have to be reborn into a new family. You see, your family, your nuclear family is not the end of your life, people. Your nuclear family is an object lesson to teach you about spiritual children. Go outside your doors. Pour into other people. That's one. Two, we are a relational people made in the image of a relational God. God is a triune God. He's a relational God, and we are made in his image. That means there is nothing natural about isolation and separation. It is actually wholly unnatural to the Imago Dei, the image of God. There is something, hear me, there is something unnatural about isolation. Three, 
we are supposed to find joy, supposed to find hope, and even boasting in one another. That we should be boasting on the Vance's behalf, that their excitement is our excitement. That when someone has a victory in our church, their victory is our victory. That we should have boasting and joy and hope in one another. Because Jesus is the head, but the church, his people, are the body. And as you see throughout Paul's writings, Paul's goal is to see the bride purified, prepared, and presented to her groom. This is what he labors for, he says in Colossians. Paul's joy is the bride of Christ made holy and filled with love and ready for her groom. And Paul's hope is that the groom will come back for his ready bride. And he finds joy in that, and he finds hope in that, and he finds boasting in that like a proud parent. The church is the body of Jesus. And so to love Jesus is to love his body, and to love his people is to show him love as well. Because if you tell me you love me, and you treat my bride like garbage we're going to have an issue. All right? You understand? What spouse who loves his wife, what husband who loves his wife wouldn't feel that way? If someone came up and spit on your bride, wouldn't you sock him in the mouth? This is how Jesus feels about his bride. To love his bride is to love him, is to honor him, is to respect him. And so the discipleship relationships that we have together, not just your DG, but the body of Christ, they should give us joy. Listen, do your discipleship relationships, whether they're informal or formal. I'm not just talking about a program of formality. Do your discipleship relationships of encouragement and support and sharpening, do they give you joy? And if not, why? What is holding you back from connecting with people? What is holding you back from other humans? Not what's holding them back. What's holding you back? You know, Timothy, Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. He was circumcised by Paul, literally. He was coached by Paul. He was developed by Paul. He traveled with Paul. He was loved by Paul. And this is what Paul says to Timothy in his final letter before he dies. He says, Timothy, what you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be competent to teach others as well. In other words, he says, Timothy, do what you saw me do. Say what you saw me say. Pass on what you heard from me, because I'm done, but you're still here. Who are your Timothys? A couple weeks ago, I asked you to write down six names. How many of you actually did it? <laughs> How many of you actually followed up on what you wrote down? Relationships are the grounds for discipleship. Paul has made this clear, and so I just ask you, who are you in relationship with, and how can you become more like Paul and more like Jesus with your relationships? 
and we have an announcement here to end. Certainly, we can relate to Paul as we think about the last year and a half being ripped away from people, places, and opportunities. And for all of us, I hope that at the bare minimum, this caused you to long for one another because we remember the sigh of relief when we finally got to gather, when we finally got to see one another's face, these sorts of things. Over the last year and a half, we've been trying to maintain relationships with our contacts in Greece, much the way Paul wanted to have his contacts in Greece. And we haven't just viewed these as opportunities or work, but we've tried to foster relationships not knowing what the future could possibly hold. We've prayed for one another, with each other. We even got to watch Hadi get married on Zoom to help him purchase furniture for his apartment with his brand new bride. Well, last week, Hadi called, um, he called me and David, and he said he wants us to go to Greece on a Luke 10 trip. For those of you who went through the hub, you know what that means, but it's the idea of going like Paul, looking for spiritual contacts where there's not work, building those relationships like Paul did in Thessaloniki. Because this is what we should be doing here in Cape May County and in the rest of our region and to the ends of the earth. That's what the Vances are going to go do in New York City. That's what we should be doing. And so we talked with, he talked with his team, and we talked with the elders, and although very short notice, and knowing that it would be a little weird, because basically he said, Bill and David can go, and that's what, because we got to fit in one car with our stuff, and we got to just go. And we said, okay, we'll buy the tickets, because we don't want to miss an opportunity. Well, two days after buying our tickets, a wrench was thrown into the works, and now his team is saying that he cannot travel with us around Greece as either a co-worker or a translator. Orphaned again. And so now we're at a crossroads. Are we supposed to still go and just believe in faith that God's got a plan? Did we mishear the spirit? Did we rush what is the Lord doing, or is Satan trying to hinder? Perhaps we go and we find a contact and we pour into them, and who knows? Or maybe not. And so we need all of you guys to be praying for wisdom because we have a very short amount of time to even figure this out. Do we go not speaking the language and believe that God's going to do something miraculous? Or do we take this as a closed door? And so I'm going to ask you if you'd pray at your tables for wisdom for the elders, wisdom for us, that God would make it very clear. That's one. And two, to pray that God would make it very clear to you in which people he wants you to be pouring out your life. Okay? Let's pray at your tables together.